Hello, and welcome to Champagne and Murder, please. I am your host, Brittany, and I'm so glad that you're here with me. Um, today's story is a bit of a long one and a little bit creepy, um, but before we dive into that, by now I'm sure you've all heard about Leslie Van Houten, or Houten, however you say it, being released from prison. And initially, she was sentenced to death, but her sentence was reduced to life in prison when capital punishment was outlawed in California, and that was like a year after she was sentenced. Um, but now, there is a concern among the victim's families that other Manson family members may be released from prison after this. So, I guess as time goes on, we'll be learning more about that possibility and... I know we here at Champagne and Murder, please, will be keeping our eyes and ears open for more information about that. Um, but anyway, tonight we are drinking a Chandon Brut. It's about $26 and it's available at many retail stores. So I just wanted to touch on the Leslie Van Houten thing. And now let's jump into the story because it really is a long one. It's only about 40 pages. It's fine. So for the story today, it is about a man you may have heard of named Herbert Richard Baumeister, and he was born in Indianapolis, Indiana on April 7th in 1947. He was the oldest of four children. His father was Dr. Herbert Eugene Baumeister, an anesthesiologist, and his mother was Elizabeth Baumeister Schmidt. Herbert had lived in a, he had lived a relatively normal childhood until he reached adolescence, when he started to exhibit some antisocial behavior. His friends would later recall Baumeister's urophilia, which is a sexual interest focused on urination and urine. You. <laughs> and how he used to, quote, ponder what it would be like to taste human urine, end quote. He also liked to play with dead animals and would urinate on his teacher's desks. That's disgusting. Sorry to all the teachers out there. A close school friend named Bill Donovan recalled that Baumeister would fall into strange reveries, often wondering repulsive things and doing strange things. One morning on the way to school, Baumeister picked up a dead crow that had been hit by a car and put it in his pocket. Then later, while his teacher wasn't looking, he dropped it on her desk. I don't know what she did to deserve that, but <laughs> that's terrible. In his teen years, irresponsible and combustive, his unusual behavior caught the attention of his father, and he secreted his son off to, men to have mental examinations done. After a lengthy series of tests, Baumeister was subsequently diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and antisocial personality disorder. But after his diagnosis, diagnoses, sorry, he did not receive any further treatments, which is strange to me being that his father was a doctor and in the medical field. But anyway, his high school, they focused more on sports and everything seemed to revolve around sports and athletes and everything. And Baumeister, with his obscure interests, did not become part of the in crowd. And also he did not blend in with the rest of his classmates. So he withdrew more into himself and spent a lot of his time alone, which was no surprise to anybody, and he didn't date. And in his college years, he remained ever directionless. 
He went to Indiana University and dropped out his freshman year in 1965, and he returned for a a semester here and there throughout the next four years, but he never actually graduated. And in 1972, he attended one semester at Butler University. No one knows really why he didn't finish. He just didn't have a direction, I guess. Um, Nevertheless, through his father's persistence, his father being a respected man in town, the Indianapolis star hired teenage Herb on as a copy boy. Gary Donna, an advertising executive who worked for the paper, remembers Baumeister as a, quote, sensitive as to the way he was viewed and treated by the higher-ups. He obsessively wanted to be a somebody. He dressed well and he was eager, but never quite fit in. As an adult, he drifted through a series of jobs, and although he had a strong work ethic, his behavior was becoming more and more bizarre. The one odd incident that occurred when Bomeister, so he offered to drive Donna and his friends to the IU football game in hopes that he might become one of the gang. So he's trying to fit in. He's trying to see where he fits in this group. So when the day came, he showed up in a hearse. And he probably acquired it through his connections with the hospital where his father worked. And with the lights all flashing, raced to the game, laughing all the way there. And Donna recalls, quote, people started pulling off the road. He also wore a chauffeur's cap. He thought it was kind of funny, end quote. Donna and his friends and their dates, however, wondered what kind of oddball was behind the wheel. Which, it sounds kind of fun if he was like a normal guy and like, I don't know, just kind of goofing around, but I, I don't know. It just seems silly. And the weirdness didn't stop there. It wasn't long after he started working at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, another job that supposedly was secured for him by his father, that Baumeister began ranting and raving at fellow employees for no apparent reason. His tenure over the years was marked by his odd behavior and according to former co-workers and others, one Christmas he raised eyebrows by sending co-workers a card with a photo of him and another man dressed in drag. Which, it could be kind of funny, you know, if not for what he did later in life. Despite his in-house personality conflicts and erratic deployment, the Bureau noticed his apparent go get em attitude mixed with a high degree of intelligence. It wasn't long after that he earned the title of program director, and where others might have taken the challenge with an exerted professionalism, Baumeister's antics increased and flourished. Quote, Herb had displayed what those who knew him characterized as a bizarre sense of humor, end quote. While he was at the BMW, he, or BMV, sorry, he urinated on his boss's desk, and it was no secret who the culprit was. Still, somehow, Baumeister managed to avoid being fired. Well, that is, until he urinated on a letter addressed to the governor of Indiana. That, that was the one that got him. So, in November of 1971, Baumeister married Juliana Sater, or Julie, in the United Methodist Church in Indianapolis. Julie was a college graduate and was introduced to him by a mutual friend. She was attracted to the tall, light-haired, boy-faced Baumeister, and in their initial chatting, discovered they shared many things in common, which I'm sure he didn't talk about his fascination with urinating on people's desks, but 
They were both young Republicans, and they both yearned to have their own business one day. Julie quit her job as a high school journalism instructor in the latter half of the 1970s to concentrate on having a family. Baumeister was making decent money at the BMV. Together, they had three children. In 1979, they had Marie. Eric then came in 1981, and Emily came along three years later. When Baumeister was asked to leave the BMV, Julie, the ever-faithful and dutiful wife, returned to teaching to supplement her husband's income through his assortment of odd jobs. He would eventually start working for a thrift shop, and although he felt menial at first, he soon realized the potential available in a place like that. So he and Julie talked it over, and based on Baumeister's acquired knowledge of running a store like that over the last three years, decided to invest what money they had into opening their own store. They ended up borrowing $4,000 from Baumeister's now-widowed mother, and in 1988, they opened a Save-A-Lot thrift in conjunction with the highly respected Children's Bureau of Indianapolis. It was a centenarian charity benefiting the area's families. The shop was located on 46th Street, sold used clothing, household goods, and a number of second-hand items. So, your typical thrift shop. But the inventory in the store technically belonged to the charity, which would in turn receive a contracted percentage of the proceeds. Shoppers found the Save-A-Lot tidy and offering only quality merchandise. It became a popular place to shop for families that were on a budget. Herb and Julie received high praise from the Children's Bureau, whose human cause greatly benefited from the couple's management skills. The store earned $50,000 in its first year, and soon they were able to open a second store. Being successful business people now, in 1991, the Baumeisters moved from their middle-class home in the, into the more fashionable Westfield District, which is about 20 miles from Indianapolis and Hamilton County. They bought, on contract, an elegant Tudor-style home called Fox Hollow Farms, complete with four bedrooms, an indoor swimming pool, and a riding stable. The 18-and-a-half-acre property provided the country tranquility that Julie had always wanted to be able to raise her children in. It sounds wonderful. And probably they didn't have a lot of neighbors, which is great, which I enjoy myself, not going to lie. So on the outside, everything's going perfectly for the Baumeisters, but according to John Egloff, the Baumeisters' one-time lawyer, quote, Herb called the shots and Julie always went along for the ride, end quote. He felt that Julie was forced to live in Herb's shadow. In Where the Bodies Are Buried, it's, there's a show and a podcast, and I believe there's also a book. Um, he discusses the perception of the Baumeisters. Whenever, quote, whenever they disagreed about what should be done with respect to a particular matter, Herb would basically take over the conversation. He'd say, Julie, that's not what we're going to do. And Julie deferred to Herb, but she wasn't very happy about it, end quote. And more than once, the couple actually split up, but each time it was brief. Even their house seemed to absorb the tension between them. Neighbors and business associates that visited Fox Hollow Farms later recalled the rooms were cluttered and unkempt. The Baumeisters said they said lacked order, or more importantly, they ignored it. The once beautifully groomed grounds became overgrown. Julie would often take the children on weeks-long visits to Grandma Baumeister at her condominium on Lake Wawasee. And the couple would inform their friends that Herb wouldn't go with them due to business pressures. 
Behind their bedroom doors, there was little pacificity to their marital problems. Julie would later admit that she and Herb had only engaged in sex six times in their 25-year marriage, and Julie had never seen her husband nude, which is really, really weird. But anyway, he would dress in the bedroom or in the bathroom, and he always slept in his pajamas. He was ashamed of his skinny body. Detective Vandegrift says, quote, that should have been a tip-off to Julie that something was wrong. But she was an over-trusting woman who, despite their problems, put complete stock in her husband's actions, end quote. And Julie, probably trying so hard to reconcile their differences, threw her mental state into a complete dependency on her husband. Quote, I think deep inside she chose not to see the signals, end quote. And that's what Vandegrift says. And that may be why she also believed Baumeister's ridiculous alibi in 1994. Their son Eric had been playing in the wooded backyard when he found a half-buried, complete human skeleton. Eric showed his gruesome discovery to his mother, and Julie anxiously awaited her husband's return from the shop. When she showed him what Eric discovered, he explained, in a monotone voice, that it had been one of his father's dissecting skeletons. He had stored it in their garage and then buried it in the yard only after he decided to clean out the garage. Simple explanation, he said, and that was it. The subject was closed. So no more questions were asked. Now, on to this Detective Virgil Vandegriff. Vandegriff had been in law enforcement, in the law enforcement arena, and had seen and heard enough drama in his life as a Marion County Sheriff to immediately spot trouble lurking in the shadows and around corners. He started his successful private investigations firm in Indianapolis in 1982, conducting that business part-time until he retired from the county in 1989. And since his retirement, his firm had been operating virtually around the clock. He is one of the most respected people in town, high-tech and astute, and had a reputation for getting the job done. One of the more popular services that his firm offered was locating missing persons. He explains, quote, the way it works around here in Indianapolis is that persons are not classified as missing until they are gone 24 hours. The case then goes to a district detective, and if they don't find them in 30 days, it travels to the missing persons bureau for them to investigate. Now, to the general public, this seems like a lot of red tape and highly absurd. Parents don't want to wait to find out what happened to their kid, and wives don't want to wait and see what happened to their husbands. They come to me, end quote. When the mother of 28-year-old Alan Bussard approached him in early June 1994 to tell him that her son was missing, Vandegrift didn't alarm. Many cases, he states, usually turn out to be more mere runaways with little or no foul play involved. He began to investigate the case anyway. Alan Bussard, he learned, had had his own share of troubles. He was a heavy drinker. He also was a gay man in a community that pretty much shunned the lifestyle. He had last been seen leaving a gay bar called Brothers. Virgil issued, issued posters throughout Indianapolis and elsewhere that ran Alan's photo and asked anyone with information to step forward. If Vandegrift suspected no ill intent behind Alan's disappearance, his perception of what most likely did not happen to the man changed quickly. Before the end of July, he became convinced that, as he puts it, quote, Indianapolis had a serial killer on its hands, end quote. 
because three similar incidents occurred and were tumbling over each other. Vandegrift learned that a detective named Mary Wilson was working on the disappearances of other gay men throughout the area, all very similar to the Broussard mystery. And even their physical appearances and ages were similar. When he came across a small article in a magazine called Indiana Word about a man named Jeff Jones who had disappeared in 1993, the Word reported that Jones, age 31, had disappeared into thin air on the streets of Indianapolis. Vandegriff, while researching Jones, discovered that the prodigal shared a background of social indifference and wayward habits as the other. But there was one thing that convinced Vandegrift that these vanishings were more than circumstantial, and that was the event of yet another disappearance. The latest one took place in July, and this time it was Roger Allen Goodlett, a 34-year-old man. He had left his mother's house to visit a gay bar on 16th Street. And as with the other men, roughly the same age and with the same casual approach to life, Roger, too, was swallowed into oblivion. Just like, the Broussard, just like Broussard's mother, Goodlett's mother also came to Vandegrift looking to avoid waiting the obligatory legal period. She wept as she told Virgil about Roger, his childhood demeanor, his trusting nature, and his tendency to drink too much. The whole list of factors that made Roger vulnerable and alone out in the streets. And as Vandegrift listened to her, he thought to himself, quote, It felt like a repeat of those sessions with Alan's mother. The fates of these men were too close to ignore, end quote. So Vandegrift, along with his investigators, Bill Hillsley, scoured the gay bars in town, but they didn't end up coming up with much of anything. The owners and frequenters of these establishments did not seem to want to talk to them. Weird. They did learn, however, that Goodlett had left our place with another man, whose description remained really pretty vague, but in a light blue car with Indiana license plates. Unfortunately, Vandegrift found out that the police were desensitized in the information he provided them, but he was not to be discouraged. He knew he was on to something important, and he had had enough experience under his belt to understand the logic in a case like this. And fortunately, some breakthroughs come from the strangest places and the, in the most unexpected fashions, as he surmised one indeed presented itself in August, only a few weeks after he started on the case. A man we are going to call Tony Harris, which is obviously not his real name. He had known Roger Goodlett from the gay bar scene. He had seen Vandegrift's posters and believed that he had stumbled onto some information that may help solve the puzzle over Roger's whereabouts. His story was incredible, but he swore it was the truth. He had been with a man that he was absolutely sure was a serial killer, and when he tried to tell the local police, they treated him like he was crazy. The FBI even suggested that he was on a bad drug trip. So he called Roger's mother, and she got him in touch with Vandegrift. Tony Harris had seen and even talked to this supposed serial killer. In fact, in retrospect, he seems to have miraculously escaped with his own life. Over the next several weeks, Tony made several visits to Vandegrift's office, and each subsequent one yielded a little more information as he had recalled it, or chose to tell it. Tony was in fear for his life, but he came to know and trust Vandegrift and his secretary, Connie Pierce. He opened up more and more each time, and his interviews were recorded with his permission. According to Tony, he had chanced upon his suspect in a local gay bar in town, the 501 Club, 
and actually he had seen him before in the Indianapolis gay bar scene, but couldn't quite place him. He was tall, lanky, and silent, and they had never even spoken. On this particular August evening, what had drawn Tony's attention to the man was the extreme way he seemed to scrutinize the missing posters of Roger that hung behind the bar. Quote, I just had a feeling by the way he was captivated by that poster that he was the man who killed my friend Roger. Something in his eyes, end quote. That's what Tony told Vandegrift. Tony's story unfolded, suspecting this stranger of Roger's disappearance. He introduced himself to the man in hopes to find out what he might know. The man, who called himself Brian Smart, evaded Tony's subtle inquiries about Roger, but, smiling, invited Tony out for the night. He explained to Tony that he was a landscape artist from Ohio, currently living in an empty house outside of town that he was preparing for the new owners before they moved in. He asked Tony to go with him to the house for a cocktail and a swim, and Tony reluctantly agreed. And that's when the night of abstract weirdness began. Outside the bar, they got into Brian's gray Buick with the Ohio license plate. They headed north on Meridian Street where it turned into US I-31, and the expanse of downtown disappeared behind them and the suburbs appeared before them. Tony wasn't accustomed to being this far out of the city, but he knew they were headed to rich people territory. Somewhere past 121st Street, they got off the highway and made several more turns, then entered a quiet locale that was dotted with expensive new homes and horse farms. Brian slowed as they reached an asphalted driveway with a large sign atop a landscaped stone embankment, and Tony could only make out that it said something farms. The Buick stopped in front of a large two-door country mansion, and all the lights were off. They got out of the car and went into the house through a side entrance going through the garage where Tony saw several cars parked, and among them was an antique car. When they entered the house, Tony recalls thinking that it was haphazardly furnished. Even in the moonlit dimness, he could see that there was random furniture everywhere and boxes laying about. He continued to follow Brian through several rooms until they came to a stairwell. Brian said, quote, come on, there's electricity in the basement, end quote and he then led him down into a large recreation room. This room had a wet bar and connected to an indoor pool, which might have been pleasant were it not for the massive amounts of clutter strewn about. At the sight of mannequins around the room, all staged in various poses, Tony started to get the chills. Brian told Tony, Tony quote, I get lonely down here. They give me company, end quote. Uh, they give me the creeps. Refusing to take a drink he was offered, Tony noticed his host's countenance darken. But Brian insisted that they party, but he excused himself first for a brief moment. When he returned, he seemed a little more loose and less timid, and quite a bit more talkative. Tony was sure that he had to have done some kind of drug. He speculated that it was cocaine. Brian was able to convince Tony to go for a swim in the lap pool. While Tony swam naked, Brian talked on a number of subjects, but eventually his, ex his expression changed. Brian whispered to Tony, quote, I just learned this really neat trick, end quote. And with that, he gathered up the hose at the edge of the pool and said, quote, if you choke someone while you're having sex, it feels really great. You, you really get a rush. And he continued to explain, you just want to pinch these two veins, indicating the carotid arteries in his own neck, saying, it's such a great buzz. You should see how someone looks when you're doing it to them. Their lips change color. That's how you can tell it's working, end quote. 
Listening to this, Tony was now convinced that Brian, if that was his real name, had definitely killed Roger and who knows how many others. Brian told Tony to do it to him, and he stripped and laid down on a fold-out couch in the corner of the room, and he directed Tony to slip the hose around his throat. And as Tony did so, Brian started to masturbate. By this time, Tony was so horrified and numb, he felt compelled to do whatever Brian asked. And to Tony, it was now clear that Brian had been through the same routine many times before. And Tony realized the only way to find out how these particular sex games ended was to go all the way with this guy. So Tony placed Brian's hands around his own neck and laid down, awaiting the next steps with horror. Brian took the bait. Bending over his new plaything, Brian tied the choker tight around Tony's throat. His face was flush with anticipation. As the garroting became more intense and the blood pressure mounted in his head, Tony wasn't going to wait for further results. He pretended to be unconscious. With his eyes closed, he felt Brian's grip ease up. After a moment, Brian whispered Tony's name, and then another pause, before he started shaking Tony violently. That's when Tony opened his eyes and grinned. Brian went into a rage, saying, quote, You scared the shit out of me. You know you can die doing this. There have been accidents. End quote. And with that, Tony decided he would be frank with Brian, saying, quote, Is that what happened to Roger Goodlett? Was he one of your accidents? Were there others? End quote. However, if Tony had hoped to get a confession out of Brian, he was sorely disappointed. The only thing Brian did was stare at him, seeming not to comprehend, lost in a daze of whatever substance he had taken. His only response was a foolish-looking grin, and he acted as if the whole thing was just an amusing little game to him, one that he was in complete control of. Eventually, Brian was overcome with sleep, and this gave Tony a chance to check out the upper floors of the house because he did not believe Brian's story that he was just the landscaper. His suspicions were confirmed when he encountered children's toys and women's clothing in the rooms. The place had obviously been lived in for some time. Now, if only he could find out Brian Smart's real name. To Tony, this name had sounded phony, and he figured the police would love to have this guy's real identity. So creeping back down to where Brian was sleeping, Tony searched the pants Brian had been wearing for his wallet. But just as he was looking for the wallet, Brian snorted and shook, like he was about to wake up, and Tony dropped the pants. Before he could grab them again, Brian was awake. It took a lot of convincing, but Tony was able to get Brian to drive him back to the city. They got dressed and Brian drove them back to town, but he told Tony, quote, Hey, you're a good sport. You really know how to play, end quote, as they made their way back. Brian made Tony promise to meet him back at the 501 Club the following Wednesday. Tony wasn't entirely sure where Brian's house was located, but to him it seemed to either be in Westfield or Carmel. Both were exclusive suburbs in Hamilton County. By the directions that were given, Vandegrift knew the place for sure was outside of Marion County. The trouble was that the vague description of the house Tony gave could fit almost any one of a hundred estates in that area. And all he had to go on was that there was a sign posted near the driveway and it read something about farms. But Vandegrift was becoming more anxious as the Wednesday of Tony and Brian's meetup drew closer. He had posted one of his men, Steve Rivers, outside of the bar while Tony waited inside. And because Tony had spotted several cars in Brian's garage, Rivers had to watch the faces of anyone in a car that seemed to cruise by. No one fit Brian's description, though. Brown-haired, long-faced, and pale. 
By the time the bar was closing that evening, Vandegrift was disappointed that Tony had been stood up. Vandegrift, realizing that he had uncovered a much larger case than that of just a missing person, he notified the Indianapolis Police Department. While the police had previously sent Tony and his story packing, Virgil took Tony and his information to the one person in the department whom he believed would see the value in it. It was Mary Wilson, the no-nonsense detective who Vandegrift knew was already working on a number of other missing persons cases. He found her with ready ears. So Mary Wilson was a dark-haired, pretty woman in her mid-40s. She had steadily worked her way up through the ranks of the Indianapolis Police Department from beat cop to detective. She had also served in the Sex Crimes Division, where she quickly learned the pathology of sexual criminals and the aberrations connected with their acts. By the time she had transferred to missing persons, Mary had already realized that people aren't always what they seem to be on the surface. Mary enjoyed almost everything about missing persons cases, the sense of closure that came with finding people, talking to the family members and friends, retracing the person's steps, following every lead to its logical end, kind of like unraveling a piece of cloth. It was the purest kind of police work as far as Mary was concerned. She had even been the principal investigator on the Jeff Jones disappearance, the one whose details matched so closely to the missing persons reports for Roger Goodlett and Alan Broussard. Mary was also on the missing persons cases of 20-year-old Richard Hamilton, 21-year-old Johnny Bayer, 28-year-old Alan Livingston, and others dating back to the early 90s. They were all known gay men, and they all had mysteriously disappeared. Mary recognized that Tony may be the long-lost connection that could help tie these cases together. He had actually survived a night with a possible killer and was willing to speak about his experience in all of its sordid and mind-bending details. Tony retold his story to Mary, and then he accompanied her on the prowl through the northern suburbs to find the scene of his nightmare. They pulled into one driveway after another, but none of the private mansions seemed familiar to Tony. In the meantime, Mary designated plainclothesmen to field the gay bars in town, the 501 Club, the Varsity, and Our Place, where they chatted up the owners and their frequenters for any information that might help identify this elusive kidnapper. Mary and Tony asked Tony to get her Brian's license plate number, and she would be able to take it from there. But she wasn't sure Tony would be able to get it for her. But Tony and his friends had a better shot at getting it than she did. They were, after all, in the bars, and there was a chance that Brian would show up again. Tony continued to drop in at Vandegrift's office to speak to Connie Pierce because he felt they had a bond. Connie also matched her boss's perception of crime fighting in that all pursuits are fair game. Where Vandegrift utilized high-technology components of law enforcement, Connie knew he wasn't beyond using other means such as hypnosis, for instance, to solve some 300 crimes. And so it was Connie's idea to call a psychic friend of hers named Wanda who lived in Ohio. She relayed the information and facts from Tony's interviews in the hopes that Wanda might be able to shed some light on the whereabouts of the house with the mannequins. And while she couldn't pinpoint a location, Wanda's words made Connie shudder. She said, quote, I see a man tied to a bed, handcuffed and spread eagle. I see pictures being taken while he is being strangled. The tongue is swollen, quite long, coming out of his mouth, and the eyes, oh, that's a hell house. Tell t Tony never to go there again, end quote. Vandegrift was impressed with the woman's dramatic warning, and he continued to check out the house's identity through more routine means. 
He said, quote, my clients had paid me what they could afford to investigate the disappearances of their sons, and even though the Indianapolis police had taken up the case, I felt like I just couldn't drop it in their laps and walk away. The money I was paid had long been used up on equipment and man salary, but that didn't matter. When I feel I'm onto something, well, that's my nature. Hey, I knew we were talking murder here, the existence of what I smelled as a serial killer, end quote. Vandegrift dispatched Bill Hillsley, who had been a state trooper for many years and knew the highways and byways of the Indianapolis area, to search the county su- country suburbs. His quest had brought him to a property sign at the end of a long driveway in Westfield marked Fox Hollow Farms. Bill was aware of Tony's statement about seeing a sign outside of Brian's house that read something farms and figured he would investigate it. The estate at the end of the long driveway greatly resembled Tony's description, large, run-down, and morbid. It appeared that no one was home, so Bill parked his car and started looking through the windows, hoping to catch sight of an indoor pool or the smell of chlorine. He knew he was stretching the legalities of his job, so he didn't linger, but he felt sure that this might be the place that Tony had been taken to. And as Bill would find out, the house belonged to a family named Baumeister. Vandegrift ordered aerial shots taken of the property, and when they showed the, Tony the photos, it took him a minute before he said, quote, No, I don't think so. The driveway is too short from what I remember it to be, end quote. Which reminds me of the fact that over time, witness statements can alter and change through no fault of their own. It's just how our brains work. So it's not Tony's fault he didn't remember. So Herb Baumeister, in the meantime, was continuing to live his facade. His marriage to Julie continued on the surface normality, and their two Save-A-Lot stores continued to occupy much of their daytime hours. The cracks that had, up until the mid-90s, been invisible to the outside were now beginning to manifest. The strain from a sexless, loveless marriage was starting to wear on Julie. People at home and in their neighborhood were starting to talk. Even professionally, their businesses began to suffer. By the end of 1994, the Save-A-Lots had taken a plunge, shopper traffic began to decline, and bills soared. While Julie, tired of the fighting and bickering, financial dilemmas, and tired of a not-quite-fairy-tale life, threatened to file for divorce. But as another new year started, Julie failed to act. Instead, she sat by and watched as her husband's businesses declined, her marriage soured, and her husband became even stranger. In the workplace, Herb's ever-changing moods were weighing heavily on his employees. He demanded grueling work and unfair attention from them, acting as if he was some sort of king or dictator who deserved the, the peon's praise, and he would fire those who wouldn't comply with his unjust treatment. His own workday behavior was a farce. He would disappear for hours only to return reeking of alcohol and barking orders through his whiskey breath. The once tidy stores had become sloven. One of Herb's clerks remembers, quote, everything was so dirty. Everywhere you looked, there were mountains of garbage bags. It was like working in a garbage heap, end quote. Now, almost a year had passed since Vandegrift and Wilson had started their search for a man named Brian Smart. The man's real name and his house full of creepy-ass mannequins still remained a mystery. Vandegrift stated, whatever leads we could have taken went nowhere. Personally, I didn't feel there was a whole lot of cooperation between the city police and the Hamilton County officials, whose attitude I sensed was one of, quote, these folks are rich, therefore above suspicion, end quote. But in truth, 
there weren't many leads, so we couldn't push too far. Hamilton was Indiana's fastest-growing, wealthiest county. The median family income was 87 and and some change, $1,000. More than twice of that, the rest of the state, which in today's money would be 181000 and some change. And the average home went for about $106,000. And with just a quick 25-minute drive north of Indianapolis, it was dotted with picture-perfect older communities and a veritable postcard of suburban middle America. The hard lead that Vandegriff and Wilson had been waiting for finally came forward. Assuming the situation had cooled off enough for his reappearance on the gay scene, Herb Baumeister decided to stop in at the Varsity Lounge on the evening of August 29, 1995. Tony was also there and had honestly given up on ever seeing Brian Smart again. And when he saw him, he had to keep from jumping out of his own shoes with excitement. He casually chatted with Baumeister, and then, when the evening was coming to a close, he managed to get the license plate number of the pickup truck that Baumeister drove away in. And the very next morning, after hearing what Tony had done, Mary cheered. The plate number had read 75237A and did not belong to anyone named Brian Smart, but to a man named Herbert R. Baumeister of Westfield, Indiana. He just so happened to live on an estate called Fox Hollow Farms with his wife and children. This manor house, Mary learned, had an indoor basement swimming pool. And with the police finally closing in, Herb was beginning to unravel. Mary, along with her boss, Lieutenant Thomas Green, went and paid Baumeister a little visit at his Washington Street store in November after they had been surveying his movements for a time. Mary straight up told Herb while they were there. They had been investigating the disappearance of several young men from the Indianapolis community, and that Herb was a suspect, and they wanted to search his home. And with the snub of a suffering saint, Herb refused, telling the detectives that further communication would have to be channeled through his lawyer. Afterwards, while in the car, Green told Wilson that he thought Herb was, quote, nervous beyond belief and was one of the weirdest guys I ever saw, end quote. Mary was not about to be outdone by Herb's refusal, so she would try and out-angle him. She decided to approach Julie, who as a co-owner of Fox Hollow Farms could in fact authorize a ground search of the property. But Mary found Julie to be just as stubborn as her husband. But Herb apparently had not told Julie what he was being accused of, and instead he had said they came to talk to him for what was theft, and that if anyone approached her, not to let anyone, under any circumstances, do a search of the property. But when Mary confided in Julie, explaining the real reason for the request, Julie looked at Mary as if she had dropped a nuclear bomb in her lap. When she recovered enough to answer, she told Mary that they couldn't search her home, although she said it politely and was still obviously stunned, almost beyond words. Mary gave Julie her card and told her to call her if she changed her mind. Julie's refusal, at least in the eyes of the law, did not indicate her guilt, but it seems to be a typical reaction of a wife who denies she has wedded someone with such a dark side. Which is understandable. I wouldn't want to believe that about somebody I married. As life at the Baumeister home soured even more, brought on by the tensions Herb was feeling by the police inquiries, Julie called Mary and blamed her for causing her life at home to be worse than before. She screamed, quote, the police are not coming into my home, tearing through things, upsetting my children, all on the word of a psycho named Tony, whom my husband hasn't even heard of, end quote. Vandegrift hated the 
the waiting game played by the county police at this point. Mary, who wanted a search warrant, couldn't get one issued because Hamilton County was out of her jurisdiction. Hamilton County, in the meantime, would not cooperate. Why? No one knows. Whether it was because they were too timid to confront an otherwise law-abiding citizen until they had solid proof, or if it was because they really did not believe Baumeister was guilty. No one knows. But it may have saved a lot of trouble in the six months of waiting that it eventually took Julie to finally open her backyard for an investigation. It wasn't until June 1996 that Julie finally came to her senses. And over that time, Herb had become a paranoid wreck. When the Children's Bureau decided to cancel its contract with the two failing Save-A-Lot stores in May, he seemed to go off the deep end. Life at home for Julie was now intolerable. Her and Herb had individually initially initiated divorce proceedings, and her mind continued through it all to replay the doubts about Herb's sanity. Suddenly, Julie realized that she felt no loyalty to the thing that had been her husband. The following day, after Julie's lawyer had notified her, Mary drove anxiously to Fox Hollow Farms. Along with Mary were two very skeptical Hamilton County officials, Captain Tom Anderson of the County Sheriff's Office and a detective, Jeff Markham. Truth be told, Anderson was sure that the, quote, human remains, end quote, Wilson had hoped to find would turn out to be animal bones. He wasn't shy about this and his thoughts about it, and even said to Mary's face that he thought it was bullshit. Julie, with her attorney by her side, met the law enforcement officials at her front door that afternoon and led them through the house to the wooded backyard. She showed them to the spot where two years earlier her son Eric had found a skeleton. Her reason for not contacting authorities about that skeleton was that she had believed Herb's story about it being a dissecting skeleton that had belonged to his father, but his recent erratic behavior had filled her with new doubts. At first glance, the yard looked normal, but as the men began to kick through the low grass and patches of dirt just beyond the back patio, they encountered a bone about a foot long. It was charred from being burned. They couldn't tell if it was human, though. They focused on the area immediately around them, and it quickly became apparent that what they thought were pebbles and rocks strewn across the flat cover were not pebbles and rocks, but bone fragments. Julie's lawyer, who had been watching the police pick up one chipped and broken bone after another, was now looking down at his feet. Like evidence that follows the old adage, quote, so obvious it's unclear, end quote, he realized with a chill that he too was standing on what resembled bone chips, right where the Baumeister children innocently played. At one point, he even bent down to pick up what looked to be human teeth. There were pieces of bone everywhere. Even through all this, the county officials with Mary were unconvinced that what they had been picking up and taking photos of were human. Unlike her counterparts, Mary had heard the fear in Tony's voice, and she had seen firsthand how nervous Herb had been and how he had done everything in his power to keep her off his land, including lying to Julie about the investigation. And now Mary knew why. Mary delivered the bags of evidence to forensic anthropologist Stephen Nowrocki at the University of Indiana for examination. His answer was fast coming. Quote, they're human, they're recent, and they have been burned he said. The next day, police returned to the scene of what seemed to be one of the worst crime scenes Indiana had ever encountered. It began to appear now that Herbert Baumeister's homemade graveyard might actually contain the remains of those many young men who over the last several years had vanished from the streets of Indianapolis. This time, though, other officials had joined the search party to conduct a thorough dig of the property. 
and among the group was a prosecuting attorney named Sonia Leerkamp and a half score of detectives. Naraki came as well, with two assistants, Matt Williamson and Christopher Schmidt, to perform a scientific exhumation of what was obviously a secret cemetery. The anthropological team began their hunt by placing small orange flags into the ground wherever a bone fragment had appeared, and in just a half an hour, they had dropped nearly a hundred such markers. So, summing it up, Naraki explained, quote, it looks like a disaster scene, end quote. While the dig went on into the late hours, other policemen checked out the interior of the Bowmeister home, where they found the mannequins, the wet bar, and the pool, just as Tony had told them. But they uncovered something that Tony had not seen the evening of his encounter with Baumeister. A semi-hidden video camera that the police had found. Julie was growing anxious for the safety of her son, Eric, who was at the time with Herb at Lake Wawasee. And with reality seeping in, she feared the limits to which Herb might go if he found out what was going on at the house. Prosecutor Learcamp and a county judge had drawn up custody papers to remove Eric from his father's presence. Baumeister made efforts to hold on to his son, but to no avail. He had no reason to suspect that his secret had been initially uncovered back at Fox Hollow Farms, and he figured this custody action was just a ploy by Julie to counteract his latest divorce movements. When the police showed up with the papers to escort Eric home, Herb released him calmly and without a fight. Back at the estate, though, plenty was going on. County investigators, led by Sheriff's Detective Kenneth Wisman, were beginning to put the pieces of Baumeister's puzzle together. Compost piles yielded heavy degrees of bones, where it appeared the killer had burned his corpses under piles of leaves and garbage. Then they re-interviewed Tony Harris, who told them all about Herb's obsession with strangulation and sexual asphyxiation. A big question they had was, how could Herb have strangled and buried these men without his family knowing? And it was answered in an interview with Julie herself. She had explained that sometimes, for several months at a time, especially in the summer, she and the children would visit the widow Baumeister, leaving Herb alone at home. Balancing times of the disappearances of the victims with the periods she and her children had been away, the indices matched to a T. Meanwhile, the excavations in the backyard were going on without pause. The number of people digging swelled to about 60 volunteers, most of whom were off-duty policemen and firemen. The first couple of days of searching had produced an amazing 5,500 bones, teeth, and bone fragments, which, according to Naraki, made up about four bodies. After they had com combined the entire 18-acre, combed, sorry, the 18 acres of the Baumeister property, members of the team soon learned that their search was far from over. Neighbors from the adjacent farm crossed into the police cordon to inform them that they had found evidence of yet more bones next door. They were able to lead investigators to an area cut through with a drainage, drainage ditch that separated the two properties. Here in this ditch were so many human ribs, vertebrae, and spines that one of the officials murmured, quote, Jesus Christ, they're everywhere, end quote. The bones were so numerous and actually intact than on the Baumeister's land that they actually stuck up from the mud. The shovels drew up not only more bones, but with them cans of Miller Genuine Draft Beer, which happened to be Herb's favorite drink, and handcuffs that had most likely bound the victims in death. By the time the exhumation of the area had ended, and by the time the 140 bones were estimated as those belonging to another seven men, 
the mortal count had risen to an estimated 11 men Herb had killed. It was September before the anthropologists were able to identify some of the bodies. Disappointingly, only four, and each of these gathered from dental records. The four positively identified victims named were Roger Goodlett, Stephen Hale, Richard Hamilton, and Manuel Resendez. To this day, the remains of others found at Fox Hollow Farms are waiting to be identified. But in all of this, where the fuck was Herb? That's what I want to know. He had disappeared from Lake Wawasee, and like his victims, he faded into the mist. The only clue police had had come from Brad Baumeister, Herb's brother, who had called detectives on June 29th, which was five days after police had found the graveyard behind the house. Brad told the policeman that his brother had phoned him from the little Michigan town of Fenville, telling him that he was on a business trip and needed some quick money. After Brad had sent the cash, he became aware of the goings-on at Fox Hollow Farms, and he notified the authorities immediately. As best as Brad could determine, Herb had left in his 1989 Gray Buick, leaving Wawasee, and he had headed north, and arrived at Fenville around the 28th of June. The next day, he reached Port Huron, where once again he called Brad, asking for more money. But this time... Brad had not had spoken to Wiseman, who asked Brad to tell his brother, should he call again, to have him call the police, who would like to speak with him. It was, of course, a futile request, but he figured it was worth a try. It was at this point Herb entered Canada. Ontario Provincial Police told the Indianapolis Star they believed that Herb had arrived in Sarnia on June 30th and spent several days there before he drove east along Lake Huron shoreline to Grand Bend. And there, at Piney Park, on the evening of July 3rd, Herb would take his, la- his own life. It was then that he put a 357 Magnum revolver barrel to his forehead and pulled the trigger. The note that he had left behind attributed his decision to a failing business and an irreparable marriage. But there was absolutely no mention of the skeletons that he had left behind in Westfield. Instead, his selfish final words on the three-page suicide note explained that he would now eat a peanut butter sandwich, which was his favorite snack, and, quote, go to sleep. The evening before he died, a Canadian trooper had stopped him to ask why he was sleeping in his car under a nearby bridge. He told her that he was merely a tourist and was passing through, and was grabbing just a moment's rest. At the time, she noted some of his luggage and what looked to be a pile of videotapes in his back seat. Vandegrift asked if these were videotapes of the murders he had committed in the pool at Fox Hollow Farms. We will never know, because after he died, all of a sudden, there was no sign of any videotapes. Which means he probably tossed them into the lake before he shot himself. And perhaps it's for the best. I don't know if I'd want to watch those, even being a detective. Early in his investigation, Vandegrift made connections between the disappearances of the men in Indianapolis to the strangulation murders of those men whose bodies were found along Interstate 70 in Ohio. Tony Harris's testimony was shared with David Lindloff, who was a prosecutor from Preble County, Ohio, and he was the head of the investigation of what they were calling the I-70 murders, and Vandegrift and Lindloff both agreed there were some tight similarities. The last known I-70 murder was committed in 1990, not long before the Indianapolis disappearances started. When the papers started reporting the news of bodies being unearthed at Fox Hollow Farms, Lindloff remembered a conversation he had had with Vandegriff. And now that they had a suspect, Lindloff discovered that this guy, Herb Baumeister, had made countless business trips to Ohio during the late 1980s. 
already cold to the fact that her husband was a murderer that had strangled men in their own home while she was away, this newest accusation did not surprise Julie. She fully cooperated with Lindloff and provided him with the information he wanted, like the credit card receipts, phone records, even the use of their car that Herb had driven on those business trips. It turns out that Herb's photo matched the police sketch drawn from a witness who had thought they had seen the I-70 strangler. One eyewitness even came forward and identified Herb's picture as that of the same man who had driven his friend home from the bar one evening in 1988. This friend, named Michael Riley, had then been found dead the next morning. Not long after that, representatives from counties in Ohio and Indiana held a joint press conference to definitively link Baumeister with the I-70 murders. Vandegrift does admit that, quote, there were skeptics, we will never know for sure, of course, if he was indeed the same man. Everything points to him, even the fact that the roadside killings ended at the same time he bought his house and now had a place with plenty of room to dump his bodies with a lot less hassle, end quote. So the I-70 killer, just so we have it out there, killed at least 11 young boys and adult men in Indiana and Ohio between June 1980 and October of 1991 and dumped their bodies near Interstate 70, hence the name. The killer would meet his victims in popular gay bars and other similar establishments within a four-block radius of Indianapolis. All of the victims were later found naked or partially naked, often dumped in rivers, streams, or ditches in the rural countryside. Each of the victims had been strangled to death. Although officially unsolved, Burmeister, Baumeister, sorry Gabe, was named a prime suspect in April of 1999. And according to investigators, bodies related to the I-70 Strangler case stopped being found in 1991, which is right after Baumeister bought Fox Hollow Farms. The victims of the I-70 Strangler are 15-year-old Michael Sean Petrie, 22-year-old Maurice Allen Taylor, 14-year-old Delvoid Lee Baker, 22-year-old Michael Mick Andrew Riley, 17-year-old Eric Allen Rodiger, 29-year-old Michael Allen Glenn, 21-year-old James Boyd Robbins Jr., 26-year-old Stephen Lynn Elliott, 32-year-old Clay Russell Boatman, 18-year-old Thomas Ray Clevenger Jr., and 42-year-old Otto Gary Becker. So Vandegrift gives us more to ponder yet, saying, quote, In my capacity as a private detective, I do not always have the liberty nor the finances to follow my suspicions to their limits. Otherwise, I would have taken the Herb Baumeister case a lot further than I feel the police did. While there were many fine moments in the investigation, Mary Wilson did one hell of a job. For instance, I think there were certain loose ends that should have been tied up. End quote. One of those loose ends, not addressed in the book, where the, where the bodies are buried, was that Herb had another brother that lived in Texas. And no one is sure if Herb had visited him or not, but it's strange that Herb's brother had been found dead in a whirlpool. The case has not been solved, but the incident occurred around the same time Herb was strangling people in his pool. Now, doesn't that ring a little close to home? One thing, however, is certain. Herb Baumeister fit the niche of the serial killer. Vandegrift states, quote, In fact, he was right there. Even the manner in which Herb got caught faithfully follows the mode of all serial killers' downfalls. He was overconfident in his ability to beat any investigation. Being overconfident, he carelessly left clues and one very common trait as practiced by Herb, was his leaving his victims' bodies closer and closer to his own home. In short, Herbert Richard Baumeister was the consummate serial killer, end quote. 
So there was an update January 18th, 2023, in an article by Jenny Runvich. So this is what the article says. Westfield, Indiana, 13 News learned of exclusive details about a new development in the Herb Baumeister case. The push to bring peace to the family members of the victims got a big financial boost from the FBI. Cadaver dogs searched Fox Hollow Farms in early December. They aren't the only tool, though, police are using to unearth new clues. The FBI is giving a huge influx of cash and resources to the investigation. Tens of thousands of dollars to help identify the tens of thousands of bone fragments found at Fox Hollow Farms. Hamilton County Coroner Jess Jellison explained, quote, This is for manpower, equipment, and technology. The resources the FBI will be able to funnel to our office to assist in the identification of these individuals is amazing, end quote. The money is through a SAKI grant, S-A-K-I, which is the nation's largest cold case sexual assault investigation grant. Jellison calls it a game changer for the science of the Baumeister investigation. This new help could bring peace to the families of at least 25 missing men, who police believe fell victim to a monster. Jellison said, quote, these are people, pointing to a sign on his office wall. I have that sign right there that says, no longer forgotten. That sign is for the Fox Hollow Farm. We haven't forgotten about you, end quote. Since they put out the call for the families of the missing men to submit DNA swabs to the coroner's office, he has received 31 samples. One had just come last week from a family in Alaska. They are all loved ones desperate for answers who could be connected to this case. So I am going to be keeping a close eye on any developments that come through about this story to see if any more victims get identified and more families can have peace and know that their their family member has been found. Um, so we'll keep you updated. But that was her Baumeister, crazy, peeing, killing, murderer, monster man. Hey guys, I just wanted to pop in and say lately, I have been back on my workout routine and let me tell you, Liquid IV has been there for me before, during, and after my workout sessions. In just one stick, you get five essential vitamins and two times faster hydration than water alone. I've been using it before my workouts and I feel so much better during them. It's amazing. So you can use it first thing in the morning or before you work out like I do, or when you feel run down or how about after a long night out with friends? Everybody knows you're going to need it then. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone with three times the electrolytes. Electrolytes is what's playing its grave of traditional sports drinks. John and I have used Liquid IV after long hot days outside with the kiddos and even after nights out with our friends. We love Liquid IV for how well it works and how fast we feel rehydrated. My favorite flavor is the strawberry lemonade and John loves the watermelon one. I also love that it's made with premium ingredients and it's non-GMO, free of gluten, dairy, and soy. And Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. You can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code CAMP, that's C-A-M-P, at checkout. It's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code CAMP, C-A-M-P, at liquidiv.com. Ready to shop better hydration? Use my special link, which is please, to save 20% off anything you order. And stay hydrated, y'all. 
thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Champagne and Murder, please. I know that was a long one. I'm so glad that you guys made it to the end with me. I hope that you, well, not enjoyed the story, but enjoyed learning about it and and finding out about this. And hopefully these victims will get their names back and hopefully their families can have some peace. But if you guys have any stories for us, or you want to share something with us, like a spooky story, your own personal I know a murderer story, whatever it is, you can send it to champagneandmurderplease at gmail.com. You can also follow us on our socials. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And if you guys wouldn't mind um, hitting subscribe or, you know, rating us, like that, that gives us a huge, huge boost. That would be super, super awesome. We would really appreciate it. And I hope you guys have a great weekend. I will not have an episode next week because I am going to be out of town. Um, so sorry about that. Um, I was going to try to do it, but we'll see. I'm, I'm just going to put it out there that I'm not doing it. So in case that there is an episode, you guys are like, oh, surprise. Um, <laughs> so until next time, remember, stay safe and don't take candy from strangers. Goodbye.